Girl, you the daddy. And she love me when I'm in it. And she never be pretending. Nothing is friend. She gon' tell you what she bought it. Cause she know you can't afford it. No, you can get it. Looking exquisite. No competition. Stay on the pivot. Hope be watching. They be plotting. She's so mother. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to the E-Spot. I'm your host, Camille Cower, and it has been a while. So I'm like relearning everything. Who knew how much could change in a week? So before we even get started, I just want to make sure everybody can hear me and I sound okay because you just never know. I just want to make sure before I get too far ahead since last time I was on, we were having a lot of technical glitches, and I definitely do not want that with Mr. Marcellus Reynolds, who will be my guest today. I am so excited about having him back. I absolutely loved talking with him before. I don't know if you guys happened to watch the pre previous one, but he was amazing. Well, I'm going to go ahead and bring him in. So I just want to make sure any comments just to let me know you guys can hear me okay before I bring him in because, honey, he came dressed to impress this time. I came in costume. I was trying to be cool like Mr. Marcellus Reynolds and it backfires. There can only be one. That's what I get for trying to imitate. <laughs> How, how are you? Good. How are you? Oh my gosh, you look like a million bucks. Can we oh, just? Well, you know, I, I decided to put on some clothes. I shaved my head, shaved my face for you, and then I was like, "Well, you know what? If I did all that, I might as well put on an outfit." Well, I'm just going to go on record that I shaved my face today too. <laughs> but I kind of do that all the time just to be safe. Um, I just realize it's. It's got but your. You know what you want. I could throw this outfit off in two seconds and put on my bathrobe. Look, I was like, there's something to this bathrobe or being known for being the bathrobe king. Like, there's nothing wrong with wearing a bathrobe. Like, seriously, you might have been onto something. And you know, I'm a fancy one. I've got my bathrobe is all monogrammed and ready. Oh <laughs> Mine's not. I have to admit, it was a gift from my father for, um, I think, my birthday or Christmas, but yeah, no. Okay, everybody says we sound great, and that's all that matters. I just started, actually, um, a friend of mine, when I first started wearing mono, when I first started wearing bathrobes, monogrammed by, got my monogram for me. And then ever since then, it's like, sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't, but lately, I've been like the huge uh, monogram boy because I get them from... Um, Oh God, it's a catalog and it's really a catalog and it shoots in like Maine or something and they do monogramming. So whenever I order a replacement, it takes like three days longer to get it monogrammed and it's like $10 or something extra. So I go ahead and do it. Yeah, we're going to need to go ahead and get you to send me that link because that's not that bad of a deal. Brands in. And the bathrobes okay. they're always on sale because Land's Inn is always doing like 40% off. So I always get them when they're on sale. And then I get the monogram and the monogram is like $10 and it's like perfect. See, and the fashion expert has spoken. If you're saying Land's Inn is the one to get, then Land's Inn is the one to get. <laughs> Especially it's, at 40% off. It's a really oh. good weight. It's a really good weight terry cloth. They're always running something on sale. It's always like 40% off. That's the only time I buy them. And there's two lengths. 
There's like the one that's like below the knee and there's one that's like glorious and all the way almost to the floor and mm. you get it too big and you have to wash it a couple of times the first couple, the first time you, before you wear it, you have to wash it like two or three yeah. times to get rid of the lint. Okay. But then once it's like, I call it seasoning. Once it's seasoned and it's ready, then it's ready and it's glorious. <laughs> well, I believe all your shopping hints because, because of you, my library has gotten even larger. Yes. Because you've had like all these different wonderful books you've been talking about. So I had to get the new Black Vanguard, of course. And you know the other one I'm going to say. So good. Oh, my God. You got them both. I did. I was like, I had to complete the collection of Black men doing things for Black women. (laughs) Yeah. Just saying. I, um, I just loved all the love. I was like, oh, there's more. Oh my God, there's there's more. And you know what? Um I am um I'm team everybody. You know what I mean? Everybody black. I'm like Issa Rae. And so a lot of times I and I talk about this often, I always talk about the concept of onlyness where black people are concerned. Like there's only room for one. You know what I mean? And I hate that. You know, that's something that I've had to confront within myself my early in my life, especially when I was modeling, because you always felt like if you went to a casting and you were the only black person, you were like, yes, this is my God. job. Yeah, then yeah. when another black guy walked in, you were like, well, is he cuter than me? Is he younger than me? Is he taller than me? Is his body better than me? Blah, blah, blah. And so mm-hmm. now you've defeated yourself. You know what I mean? Once you start questioning your worth, in your space, you defeated yourself. So, so often you're in these spaces where there's only space provided for one black person and then another person, black person enters. And instead of competing with everybody, you're now only competing with the black person because you feel like they can take something from you. So I've worked really hard in my life to be the one that like, if another black person walks in, I'm walking up to you and I'm, and I'm like, welcome. How can we work together? And I'm also trying to be the one that's like, once I'm in the door, I'm trying to open that door, crack that door further open so other people of color, other gay guys, other black women can get in behind me and stand with me, you know? Because we're already, people are already working against us. So we need to be working together. A hundred percent agree. And that's why even in this book journey, I'll be honest with you. They don't, those two authors don't love on me as much as I love on them, but I'm not doing it from a place of, oh, I'm only doing it because they do it for me. I'm doing it from a place of, these are three black men who wrote black books. You know what I mean? And there's a million books by white authors out there. And there's a limited number of books by black people out there. So if I'm getting any press, I'm sharing the press. I'm sharing my fucking podium. You know what That's I mean? Like so commendable, but just like you mentioned, because so few do that. And I mean, it's regrettable that they don't do it back, but you can only, in some ways, it's like you set the example of how you want to be treated. And so now they know. Like right. uh, Marcellus is about that life. <laughs> I'm not going to be I, I, You know, it took a long time to get here. And I'm, yeah. I'm going to be honest, like, you know, I grew up, I was the black gay kid. And so I was terrorized by black 
gay boys. Well, not black gay boys. I was a black gay boy, terrorized by other little boys. You know what I mean? If you grow up black and you grow up um, gay, and so, you know, everywhere I turned from a very young age, it was like the, the worst thing you could be as a black person, a black man, is be gay. You know, not be like their quote unquote idea of what a man was. And so when I hit sort of, when I hit majority and I was sexually abused by somebody, by one of my mother's boyfriends who was a black man when I was very, very young. And so I got to this place when I hit majority where I wasn't attracted to, to black men. You know what I mean? Because all my life, all, all my all my familiars had treated me unkindly. They either me, bullied me, beat me up, chased me home. Then the men in my life were, then the older men that were supposed to further, quote unquote, protect me were abusive to me because of who I was. So I was in this space of like, well, I don't like other black men because I was almost groomed to think of them as the enemy. Mm-hmm. But then the awakening for me was, I'm a black man. So how can I not like, how can I say that I don't like other black men? What does that say about me loving myself? If my journey here is about self-love and evolving, I have to reconcile all the spaces within me, all the labels that are put upon me and love myself for everything that I am. So it was only when I decided that I'm gonna really not listen to those voices from the outside that tell me I'm bad because I'm black, the white voices. I'm not gonna listen to the voices from the outside that tell me I'm bad because I'm gay, the white and black voices. Mm -hmm. That I began to love myself and then I had to give everybody else a break. I had to stop thinking of the people that hurt me as monolithic Mm. and just think of them as that one particular person or that those people hurt me and not everybody that I encounter is going to hurt me. You know, I'm going to compartmentalize. Right. Like, you know, like this is the shape that hurt, that hurt me. So I'll never buy this shape again or go around that shape. Like it's your own brain, like trying to protect you from having that same pain again, instead of just trying to figure out, how to avoid that pain directly from that person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's what the that's that's the crux of racism. Racism is when you think about an entire group and you assign negative behaviors to that group. You know, that's that's the core of racism. It's not, I'm going to assign each person individually until when they do something bad to me these feelings. Mm -hmm. But when you think about them as a whole, it's like, well, all black people are like this. No, all black people, there is no such thing as all black people. We're all individuals. Mm -hmm. Human beings are each individual. It's only when you lump us together and then you assign negative characteristics to us that you can then think of us, then you become racist, then you become homophobic. But if you think about each person you encounter as a specific individual, you can't hate somebody you don't know who's never done anything to you. That then is your problem. That is your anger, angst, evil, hate. Mm-hmm. You know. 
don't know. I'm just, I'm just on a journey that right now is just, um, I'm just loving on everybody. <laughs> you're doing an amazing job of it, I might add. I'm curious though, because I feel, I don't know, I've been having all this like thoughts since having a week off and just really reflecting on different things. And I feel like media has such a strong presence in causing some of this drama and stress and trauma that all of us are kind of living under these labels. And I'm curious because you've you've worked in the industry for so long, what do you think we can do to change it? Because I mean, other than bringing out beautiful books like that, that celebrate black women and all that we've achieved in beauty and so on. But moving beyond that, like, how do we change the stereotypes out there? Because we don't, I mean, we can't meet every person one by one, but I think media really can change things if we don't give into the stereotypes, whether it's promoting um, the homophobic stereotype within the black community. Granted, I mean, some of us have earned it, not, you know, not skating past that, but just even with um, some of the images of black women, how they always want to portray us as being overly sexualized. And if you have wild hair, then you're a wild in bed, like just the whole thing of it all, where we're just constantly fighting things that we have no idea we're fighting, but at the same time, media would be able to change that narrative that could go beyond the TV or the magazines. So, the reason that I wrote Supreme Models and the reason that I'm always talking about Antoine's book, The New Black Vanguard, and why I'm talking about Kwame's book is because as a child, for me, Kwame's book is everything. I was like, I'm just going to wait until after your interview to open them because I did not <laughs> want to get anything confused on who did what because <laughs> there's just so much to take in. Um, and all of you guys have... Not the, you know, they didn't go, I mean, I love Veronica Webb, don't get me wrong, but they didn't go for someone that looks like Veronica Webb in some aspects either. Like, right, right. All of them have medium to dark skinned women on the cover. For like, um, that's, a, that's a testament to the change in the universe right now, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't choose my book cover. Right. Abram sent me. Abram said to me, send us 10 images that you think should be on the cover, right? So I chose like eight that I were like, perfect. These, This is it. Any one of these I'm happy with. But when you tell me to do something, I'm going to do it 110%. Like I'm going to go, I'm going to go above and beyond. So I was like, I can't just send eight. I'm going to send, they asked for 10, I'm going to send 10. So now I have to, you know, because that's super important. What is the image that's going to sell your book? Mm -hmm. So I had to come up with extra images. So I sent like 11. And the very last one was, the, was this beautiful picture of Janelle Williams that ended up on the cover. But in all honesty, she was the darkest girl, the darkest model in that group that I sent. She was the least well-known in that group that I sent because I was sending Naomi and, and Iman and a wonderful picture of Leah Kabede. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Leah's dark, but she's got like her big curly natural hair, you know, that's all over the place. Mm -hmm. And she's Ethiopian, so she's got very fine features. Um, and so 
Then when they send me my cover back and it turns out that they picked one of my favorite photos, definitely is this Chanel Williams photo, but it was the one that I thought they're never going to pick that photo because it's a really dark woman, clearly African, even though Janelle's from Jamaica, um, and she's got no hair to speak of. And so when Abrams chose that photo and they sent, they literally sent the cover to me like this. They mm. chose the cover, they put the artwork, they put the print on it, they put Veronica's name on the bottom and my name, and they sent me the actual mock-up of the cover. I like broke into tears because not just because it was the culmin it was the culmination of all my dreams, but I never in a million years thought that they would put like a dark skinned black woman with like no hair on the cover or with her natural hair. You know what I mean? And they did, yeah. But going back to your first question about the media, one of the reasons why I wrote Supreme Models was because as a child, it was very important to me to see images of black people. Because I was the kid that ran home from school every day and when I got home, I watched television. Television was like my outlet, right? And so I would watch a movie and I would look for the black person in the movie. Or I would watch a television show and I would look for the black person on the in the television, you know, on the television show. Because I was looking for icons. I was looking for mentors. I was looking for I was looking for I was looking for um other people like me because I needed a space to dream. I needed to feel like if there was a black firefighter on the show, I could be a firefighter. Right. If there was a black um, doctor, I could be a doctor. You know, I wanted those images. And I didn't want the images of the black pimp, like on Beretta or Starkey and Hutch. Right. You know? Or the criminal always getting arrested. You know, mm -hmm. right. On channel, on, and you know, back in the day, when you watch the evening news, they always had the black person in handcuffs. Even when it was when it was a white person that got caught for a crime, they usually showed the white person in court in a suit. But whenever they showed the black person, he was in handcuffs. Mm -hmm. And that sends a clear message. That's the media. Yeah. You know, that mm -hmm. speaks to what you're talking about with the media. And being this entertainment reporter, I've always had this problem with that too. Because it's like, you know, when I started auditioning for things, when I came out here, mm -hmm. what you're getting right now is who I am. Right. But I would go into these rooms at E and at NBC and ABC and auditioning for things. And the notes that I would get was, that's great. You speak well, you're good looking, you know what you're talking about, but can you be bigger? And I learned that when they said bigger, they didn't mean bigger, like be louder, be like more, you know, up. Mm -hmm. They meant be gayer because they wanted that stereotypical queen that was snapping his fingers too sick and they wanted that. They wanted the in living version. In living color, yeah. You know, yeah. that. granted that's a part of me, but I get to choose when I put that on mm -hmm. and take that off. Much like blackface, you know, that's gay face. 
And that's not my normal thing. And if I'm coming in here and I'm talking to you as a fashion professional or as an entertainment reporter, it's less about me being like, hey, girl. And so when she worked that runway, I was like, yes, honey. Do, do. It's more about me being like, let me explain to you why a couture dress that costs $50,000 costs $50,000. Let me break down the parts of a shoe. Let me break down the parts of a suit. Let me tell you what it's like to be in the atelier at Chanel. Because when I was a model, I was there. Let me tell you what it's like to walk for Giorgio Armani because I can tell you what it's like backstage. Or let me tell you what it's like to style a celebrity because I've worked with Sharon Stone. So my CV and just my being should have been enough. My truth should have been enough. But when you get into that, you get into, oh, being a, a gay guy that could also actually even pass as straight fucks with people's idea of what a gay person is. So you've got to give them what they think a gay person is. So you've got to give them the the, the histronics, the histrionics. You've got to give them the like head bob and the hands, and the, which to me is not a true representation of what gay men are. I'm a gay man. It should be, that's enough if you know I'm gay. You know, I don't have to act gay to be gay. Right. The same can be said of being black. You shouldn't have to act black to be black. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Or this idea of what black is. Mm -hmm. You know, those kind of things always made me sick. But, but that's the inherent racism and hope and homophobia that's so entrenched in everyday life mm -hmm. that we can't get past. You know, it's like um, I just interviewed Antoine Sargent, who did the New Black Vanguard. And he talked to me about the All Black Vogue, right? Mm -hmm. So the 2008 All Black Vogue was this amazing moment in history. Yes, honey. <laughs> Who knew I would need that prop? But yes, yes. It's an amazing moment in history, right? Mm -hmm. It's like All Black Vogue. But Antoine broke it down in this way that made me want to throw that All Black Vogue out. Because this uh -huh. is what he said. He said, when you look at that magazine, it doesn't stand up to 2018 and 2020, right? Because he started writing his book in 2018. So when you look at the all black Vogue, you've got the two prevalent stereotypes of the black woman in that entire issue. You've got the black woman who is whitewashed. So she has long straight hair or she has a weave and she has a tiny head because she has more uni more European features. Yeah. So she's got like lighter skin. She's got a thin nose. Her blackness is gone. You know, the only thing black about her may be the fact that her skin is darker. Right. But generally. You can't tell because it's in black and white. But yeah. Right. Oops. right? Can you see? Right. So we've got, that's the image that everybody wants. They want, back then they wanted, they wanted the like sort of the Europeanized black model. Or you have Cecily Lopez, or you have the black woman, the black model being overly sexual or being like an animal. You know, she's like, and she's like overly aggressive. And she's like, you know, acting like out, like acting out. He can't be like elegant and sophisticated and 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 normal like her white model counterpart. Or ain't a nappy hair, ain't a nappy, ain't a ain't, ain't a ain't an afro in that episode. You know, almost, almost, almost. <laughs> like almost, almost. But Gail is that's Gail O'Neill. That's yeah. Gail O'Neill, light skin, 
and naturally curly hair. And so that's the closest you're going to get in that magazine and to like a lot of animal print. You know, you're right. And now it's all these dark skinned girls, and we're seeing all these girls with their natural hair. We're seeing short mm -hmm. afros, and we're seeing afros. So when he said that, I was like, oh my God, you know what? You're absolutely right. Because those are always the two stereotypes of black models that are in play historically. But then he said something that was even more important. Mm. That's the all black Vogue, but you couldn't go to those advertisers and you couldn't say, we're doing an all black Vogue, shoot black advertising for the all black Vogue. Mm -hmm. so when you flip through those ads in that magazine, they're all white. Oh. And we know being in fashion that the real money in that mag the real money in that magazine is the advertising. Absolutely. The models that are making the most money in those in that magazine are the models that are appearing in those ads. And it takes a long time before you even get to the black part of the magazine. Like I was so disappointed, honestly. Oh, let me make it close to the camera there. This is all the way in the back. As right. opposed to Where it starts. all the advertisements before that. For all the advertisements. You might, you might stumble into like one or two advertising advertisements that have a black girl in it. But for the most part, the she's most like the best friend in the back is going to be typically white people, white women. But what we know is the jobs, the real money as a model is the advertising gig mm -hmm. that pays better than the editorial. So when he was saying that, I was like, wow, you just messed up the Black Vogue for me. because that was You know, I mean, I appreciate it for what it is in 2008, yeah. you know, it like because that was a different time. And I appreciate the fact that they even did yes. this in 2008 and it, it was well overdue, but they included different ages as well because they did have Pat Cleveland in, as well in it. And um, yeah. And you know, so, that's the one they had Takara in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they so they had different sizes as well. Which was the with the plus one. So it was a great it was a great step forward. And what it showed us, because that Vogue sold out like three or four times, right? They kept mm -hmm. having to reprint it. So what that black vogue showed us is that it destroyed this myth that black women on the cover of a magazine don't sell magazines, right? And what it also showed us is that black people do buy magazines because that's another argument that we hear. Well, you know, black people don't buy fashion magazines. Well, we don't buy fashion magazines because you don't put us on the cover and you don't put us inside. So we'll stick with Essence. Thank you very much. But so it destroyed those two myths. But I think more importantly, and the thing that's missed is you did an all black Vogue and it sold out three, maybe four times. Why hasn't American Vogue done an all-black Vogue? Right. Why didn't Why didn't Italian Vogue go? Oh, you know what? There is a market for black models on the cover and black models inside. Why don't we do this more often than not? Why don't we do another issue that's all-black? Or why don't? How about this? We actually integrate more models of color across the board into the magazine. I mean, all black Vogue and they went right back to business as usual. Which is so disappointing because there would have been so easy that they could have had themes with it. Black um, model, 
but then do Asian models, Hispanic modules, um, non-binary. Like there were so many different things they could have done to make it inclusive for so many people to be able to see themselves. And that was in 2008. And we're still talking about it 12 years later. Mm -hmm. And nobody has done another all black issue. And it still hasn't changed where there's more black women in these issues of any magazines. Mm -hmm. It's a sin and a friggin' shame. It when is you've got Joan Smalls going mm -hmm. on and and telling the tea mm -hmm. about her experiences of being a, a Afro Latina model. You know there's a problem. You must be reading my head because I was just thinking about her and how she offered up half of her salary even to put her money where her mouth is in that sense as well. Like she's just. She really stepped up in that sense as far as explaining why it's a problem, even on her level, that it shouldn't be happening still. And these people really can't keep excusing the frauds that work in the business that shouldn't be working in the business. You know, what's funny is I saw that and I love Joan Smalls and she's in the book and I give her props in the book. She's got a whole like she's got a couple of photos and da 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 da. She's but here's the thing that I felt about when Joan Smalls did it. It's like, Joan, you do it now when everybody, when there's riots in the street and we're mm -hmm. protesting, but you should have done that when you were the number one model in the world, when you were literally sitting on the top, on the, on the top of models.com as the number one, mm -hmm. that's the moment when you should have called fashion out, not after you've made your money, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you're on the decline. Should yeah. you come out and be like, like, I applaud her for coming out and taking that hit. Yeah. I get it. I'm mm -hmm. happy you did it. But it would have had much more power when you were one of the most powerful people in fashion had you done it. And you I know? wonder if she just felt like maybe if she did that, it would be the end of her career. Because I think yeah. a lot of models That's are just true. too scared of losing such a great job. Because, yeah. I mean, I can't think of... And you don't mm -hmm. want to mess with your money. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's like um, it's like the Naomi syndrome. Right. So follow me with this, Camille. Because I, like, I love a Naomi ride anytime. It'll go, it'll, it'll go, it'll go where it goes. Okay. So when I talk to you about the concept of onlyness, like there can only be one. Mm-hmm. Naomi Campbell is one of the three top models in the world, probably one of the five or six top models ever. When Naomi was doing her thing, her competition was Linda and Christy Turlington. Linda Evangelista and Christy Turlington. That's it. The one and two top models ever with Naomi being number three, right? Mm -hmm. Perhaps, depending upon who you are. Right. But they never talked about Naomi versus Linda. They never talked about Naomi versus Christy. They never talked about Linda versus Christy. They never talked about Claudia versus Cindy Crawford. No, There's right. always space for however many white women walk through the door, but there's only space for one. So when Tyra Banks comes in, now it's Naomi versus Tyra. Well, Naomi's not competing with Tyra because Tyra was not in Naomi's lane. Tyra was a commercial girl that had one or two good seasons on the runway and as an editorial girl put on weight and then went to do Sports Illustrated so, or, or, and Victoria's Secret. So if Tyra was competing with anybody, she was Miss Commercial 
she should have been compared to Cindy Crawford because they both were doing makeup campaigns and, and contract out videos doing yeah. commercials. Right. They both were swimsuit girls. Tyra wasn't an editorial girl. She was barely a runway girl. But you have to put Tyra versus Naomi because there can only be space for one person. And I'll tell you something I discovered while doing this book since I'm telling tales. I talked to a bunch of models that were right there when that whole thing happened. Mm -hmm. And that was not Naomi. That was some ish that agents and white men and people in power were doing. That was some stuff that hair and makeup people were gossiping and starting and whispering in each girl's ear and playing them against each other. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. those girls let those people manipulate them into hating each other. That's so because unfortunate. That, was the stuff that John Casablanca started to control Naomi because Naomi was doing what Joan should have done when Naomi was number one. She was like, look, I'm on this set and I'm not making as much money as Christy is. Why is that? Hmm. Why is it that Christy and Linda are on the cover of magazines every month and I'm right there with them and I'm not on the cover? So hmm. Naomi was, was calling the power base to their face out and how do they decide to to call her how do they decide to control her by spreading nasty rumors about her by pitting her against other black girls by making it seem like she was crazy because she was asking for the same respect that you were giving to christy turlington and cindy crawford and stephanie seymour and a bunch of other girls that couldn't carry naomi's shoes walking down the runway or editorial editorial um. I mean, we can tell by her career who's still working. The, who's still going. Yeah. Still working the runway, still working the covers. And, and didn't bring anybody to get there. Because can we just talk about, the, talk yeah. about We can speak on that. I almost want to know, but I don't want to get dirty with it. Um, <laughs> was dating the, the president mm -hmm. of um, Elite Paris. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Seymour was banging John Casablanca when she was barely legal. Mm -hmm. You never hear about Naomi fucking anybody. If she was, if Naomi was banging somebody, she was banging some rich, famous guy that had <laughs> nothing to do with fashion. She wasn't. Like, she was on yachts. She wasn't banging her agent. She <laughs> she was banging Mike Tyson. You know what I mean? She was banging. Um, you remember boys. the Russian billionaire? She was the Russian billionaire. Yeah. She wasn't, she wasn't fucking to the top. She was there. She was there because she owned it because she deserved to be there. Mm. Don't get me started on the queen because you I'm know I'm kind of disgusted by John Casablanca, though. I mean, if she wasn't even legal, that's gross. Disgusting, disgusting, disgusting. And he pushed that mediocre girl to as far as he could get her. That's so disgusting. Seymour didn't deserve to be what she was, but Stephanie's no Naomi. She's no Linda. She's no Christie. She got what she got because of her relationship with John. John pushed mm -hmm. the hell out of her. The same with Linda. Linda was a catalog girl from 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 Can from Canada who was about to age out before she ended up in Paris and started dating the the president of elite of, of elite of France Paris. So you know those are facts. You can search that shit on the internet. That's just facts. Shit. I just watched part of a documentary where John Casablanca and I can't remember the what name. What documentary? I love fashion documentaries. Have you seen? Um... Versailles 73. 
That's my favorite as of right now. Can I tell you, I have not seen Versailles 73 and I feel like- I didn't know it was like a North Carolina woman who did the documentary. So now I'm like, I'm trying to find ways to get to her. Cause I'm like, nobody knows her in my circle. Impossible. Um, but I'm gonna make it happen. You know that um, Ava's supposed to be doing something on mm -hmm. Battle of Versailles as well. Oh, Ava DuVernay has, has had a project out there that she's been talking about a really long time. And um, it's, you know, if Ava does it, it's gonna be amazing. Absolutely. You know, I, read, I read Robin um, Gavon's book of, mm. that, that the documentary was based upon too. Okay. So, okay. You know. And then I've had the pleasure of talking to and know some of the, 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 the divine icons. I mean, they're only in your book, right? That are, that are you know, that walked in the Battle of Versailles, so. Oh. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. Well, I am over here gossiping. <laughs> I mean, and I was all like prepared to talk about your experience with reality shows, but also that you're casting them too and wanted to get advice for those that might be interested. But the tea's too good on this side of the table. We can talk about whatever you want. So he's like feeling extra. <laughs> Look, I want to make sure I find out what documentary you were talking about that you were recently watching because there is nothing better than a oh, fashion documentary, just um, for the record. Oh, it was something I stumbled into in the middle of the night. On, I, was it on Netflix or something? I can figure it out. No, honey, it was on oh. YouTube. Oh. John Casablanca was talking about the elite look of the, the elite look. Remember back in the day, it was like the elite mm -hmm. model look or something. And he apparently did not get along with the president of elite in Paris. And he was saying how they were always fighting. And he said that, um, he said something really like sort of like shady about the, it, it's fucked up that I have to work with um, with whatever his, Gerard something I think was his name. Mm. But at least I got the gift um, that is Linda Evangelista. Because mm. the Gerard guy was dating Linda Evangelista and he and, and he and John constantly were battling each other and, and constantly were butting heads. But at least he still had access to Linda because she was the top model in the world. So it was really like the real Tupac Biggie drama. Yeah, <laughs> I got your girl. It was all of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everything but the gunshots. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to find that one. I wasn't mad, you know, because like, listen, I just went on this tirade about Stephanie banging John. Mm. I dated one of my bookers when I was modeling for a <laughs> But it was age appropriate dating, I'm sure. Age appropriate dating. Yeah. And we sort of fell into it. And honestly, he never really tried to, he couldn't, he couldn't really help me because I was already bigger than he was, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But started dating him, I was already going. You know what I mean? Right. So all he was doing was like filling up my chart. And well, he was my I mean, but technically, what do they say? The statistics is like 60% you end up dating who you're around or working with. So, I mean, it's bound to happen whether, I mean, it's just like any other industry, especially when you have beautiful people at your disposal. Yeah. Come on. You and can't. Then, it becomes a no, dating thing. I mean, you, 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 listen, it is what it is. I dated a booker. I dated one of my bookers. I actually dated the president of one of the vice president of a very big department store chain that I worked for. 
worked for all the time. But literally, I met him on set, you know what I mean? And I was working for them all the time, and I actually liked him. And I had a daddy thing, you know? Like, you can't, you know, you you, you fall in love with who you fall in love with, but at least we can call a spade a spade. You know? right. Just be truthful, and that's all that matters, because it all comes out sooner or later. You know, <laughs> Somebody does a documentary or a Wikipedia page about you. <laughs> it all comes they out. Did it. You know, at least I'm sitting here and I'm going to say, I did it. It is yeah. Everybody knows I did it. You're owning your own narrative by putting it out first. I'm owning my own narrative. So what else are we going to talk about? Matt, talk so about you're casting. You're casting these fun shows. Tell us about it. Because maybe someone in the audience would like to try out for it. And what are you guys looking for? What is it about? Start from the beginning. So, Right now, I, I fell I fell back into it because when I first moved to LA, when I got off of Big Brother, because I did Big Brother season three, and then I went back and did All Stars, which would be season seven. Um, you know, I, there was this veneer of wait, like, just one second. I just realized since you brought up Big Brother, do you think in any way that prepared you for coronavirus life as far as being stuck and not being able to go places? Like, at least I can choose who I'm with. <laughs> And there's no cameras. You know what? You know what prepared me for coronavirus mm. was was being a model and living all over the world. Okay. Because there's something solitary about being a model, right? When you travel. So when I went to London the first time, I lived in a. I didn't know anybody in London. I didn't know my surroundings. I didn't know the street. I didn't know anything. And so I ended up spending a lot of time in my little bed and breakfast alone, okay. unless I was working. Or then when I went to Paris and it was like, I'd work and then I'd go back to my room because I didn't speak the language. So you learn how to be alone with yourself when you're traveling all over the world. So for me, I'm very happy being by myself. You know, I'm, I learned from 24, from 24 or whatever, however old I was until like 32, how to be alone and how to, and how to um, 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 take care of myself mentally and how to amuse myself. Mm -hmm. um, Big Brother taught me not to trust people, unfortunately. I sort of went through my life, you know, once I left, once I got to the point where I was an adult and I got out into the world and I began to love myself and sort of take away that narrative that black is bad or gay is bad. Yeah. And I got into the world and there were spaces where gay was good and there were spaces where black made you exotic, you know, and so black and gay were good. And I started to believe those narratives instead of the other narratives. Um, I became very trusting because fashion is, even though fashion is kind of racist, there is this thing about fashion where it's very open. You know, you meet, you're meeting people from every race, every sexuality, and every nationality, and you're and and it's fun, and and people, oh, you are so beautiful, oh, you're so you know this and that, and it's such a good time that I began to think that that's how the world really was, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so when I went into Big Brother, I went into it like that. I went into like, oh, I'm gonna meet some really cool people. We're gonna get to know each other. It's gonna be a fun time. 
And unfortunately, Big Brother was not the space for that. It was the space for we're competing for five hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to lie about. I'm going to lie about you. I'm going to lie to you. And mm -hmm. if I get the chance to throw you out, I'm going to. I'm going to take it. So, you know, I don't talk about Big Brother that often because both times were a really bad experience for me. Right. But I'm going to talk about it today because I'm in that mood. Uh -oh. But, um, yeah, you know, it's supposed to be a reality show and it's supposed to be like, you know, you, you get knocked down and you shake it off and you go on with your life. But the, the lasting effects for me of Big Brother is that I don't, I, I, I don't trust people the way that I used to trust people. I don't trust the producers did numbers on me both seasons and I trusted them. I trusted the house guests and they did numbers on me. So it wasn't this great experience. Like yeah. people often ask, do you still talk to people from Big Brother? I don't talk to any of those motherfuckers because you can't trust any of them as far as you can throw them. Oh, you know? wow. Yeah. Maybe a couple. I mean, I still talk to, strangely, the girl that during season three stabbed me in the back and got rid of me that, that took my ability to trust from me. We're now friends. Okay. Because we did the work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We 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 screamed at each other. We were mad at each other. We we told each other how we really felt, and then we kept coming back to each other because we realized that what it was that we did to each other, we needed to heal, and we could only heal if we helped each other fix mm -hmm. those broken things. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So. I talked to a couple of them, but I don't, but as a, as a rule, I don't mess with any of them. But yeah. that's, but that said, the moment that Big Brother ended and I spent like maybe a year or two just doing, just going on auditions in LA and then traveling outside of LA and doing appearances and making a buttload of money um, doing appearances because back then there weren't that many reality shows on television. It was like Big Brother, Survivor, Amazing Race, and then it was the shows on MTV. It was like the real world and road rules. So I would go with a couple of Big Brother people and do things. Um, and Amy, Amy, um, Amy from my season and I stood on a bridge in like in like uh, uh, Nashville or somewhere and made not Nashville. Where were we? Were someplace deep south and. We did an appearance and it was this public thing. We made like $5,000 each just standing on the bridge all day talking to people. It was brilliant. And I was doing college tours with people from the real world. And you know, you would do like 10, you would be on a bus and you would do 10 colleges and you would make like two grand each college. And you like, I would come home like a stripper. I would come home and drop and money is like onto my bed, shove it all off the bed. And the bed. Wait, were you doing um, the angels and the money? I always said I would do that if I ever won the lottery. Because for the most part, they were checks, but sometimes we get yeah. I mean, I was doing things like I was having lunch with like fans, and I would make a thousand dollars for having lunch, and they would have to pay for lunch. So it was good money. But when I wasn't doing that, and when those appearances slowed down, I started casting. Okay. And I really liked that sort of behind the scenes 
part of it. And luckily it was um, a, a friend who, like one of the first people I met in LA when I got evicted from Big Brother the first time, lived next door to us and um, he was a casting agent. So he was a crazy Big Brother fan and he was like, well, will you help me? I'm casting this thing, I need an assistant. And I would be like, okay. And so I would go in and I would run the camera while people audition. And then I would run lines with the, with if it was an acting thing, I would run lines with them because my major in college was theater and I had taken a billion acting classes. So I would run lines with them. And a couple of times while I was running lines, the director would be in the room and they would be like, oh my God, you're really good. And I'd be like, well, I was an acting student. And yeah. I got a couple of parts in these stupid shows because I was there really and I really liked casting. And then I was good at it, I think, because I had been a model and I had been a wannabe actor. So I knew what it was like to, to be, you know, stressed and crazy, you know. And, and, and so I would go out in the, in, the, in, the, in the casting room and I would talk to the people as they were signing in. And I would sit down next to them and I'd be like, are you ready? Did you, you know, do you know your lines? And I'd well, read. Okay, let's real quick. We're gonna read your lines really quick before you go in there, uh, and yeah. and people liked it, and I liked it, and then you know, and it was good. Casting is good money if you can get in there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I I was casting. I cast a boatload of stuff on the low while I was still trying to be a celebrity stylist. While I was still trying to audition myself, that was how mm -hmm. I made my money because I couldn't go back to waiting tables, you know? I couldn't go get a real job because I was still here pounding, you know, hustling. So I ended up casting. And um, earlier this year, a friend, one of my very good friends who I introduced to one, another one of my very good friends, they ended up getting married. Uh -huh. um, her name is Valerie Penso and she did Temptation Island. And Temptation Island came out right around the time when I had when Big Brother was out. So we met right after our shows ended, and we would go to events together and go out and hang out together. And we've been friends ever since. She became a casting director, and so she would always be like, "Well, you know, take a job casting, or this person's hiring." Da 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 da. And I had got to the point with it where I was like, "No, I'm good," you know. But then this time. Earlier this year, she came to me and she's like, look, they're casting Supermarket Sweep. Mm -hmm. You should cast the show for them. And they know you. Right. And so I went and so I talked to the girls from City Media Entertainment. And I was like, I think I want to cast the show. And they were like, what, you? And I was like, yeah. And they think I'm crazy. They think I'll talk to anybody. So they were like, perfect. You know, and so they would literally call me and they would be like, we need firefighters. And I would be like, I'm on it. And I'd be running all over the city to go to different fire departments. And I'd walk into the fire departments with my cards. I'd be like, look, I'm casting Supermarket Sweep. Or they'd be like, we need old people. And I would go to like recreation centers and I would go. <laughs> like, yeah, I love it. Imagine being at the fire department and Marcellus walks in. Flyers, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm casting Supermarket Sweep. Or I would be like, you know, you know, out on the street and I would see somebody and think that they were cute or, you know, whatever, or be shopping. And I would be like, have you ever thought about doing a game show? And, you know, because I'll talk to anybody. And and I did a really good job casting. I was a beast casting Supermarket Sweep. It was like, 
like I had all these teams and all my teams were getting through to the next level. Damn. And even if they didn't get through to the next level, they were things that you normally didn't see. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I was casting like bodybuilders and trainers and and part-time models that were doctors and dentists. And I called my dental office and I was like, look, girl, I'm casting a show. You know anybody? And then my dentist was like, I want to do it. And so I was like, find a partner. And she found a partner that was a dentist. So I had a team that was dentist, you know? Oh, how cute. I can't wait for this show to come out. This is going to be a lot of fun. And so, you know, Supermarket Sweep is iconic. And then I did such a good job with that show that now they're casting a show called Small Fortune, which is a British show that's coming here for the first time. And they asked me to cast that. And this one's been a little bit more challenging because it's teams of three, unlike Supermarket Sweeps, that was teams of two. And they really want the three people to have a real relationship, like to be close and tight. So we're looking for family members. We're looking for like... Uh, you know, mother, daughter, granddaughter. We're looking for like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or we're looking for people that have sheltered in place together. So roommates that have been together the whole time or people that like are out working, but, you know, getting coworkers so that they can all audition together. Okay. So, it, you know, and apparently I'm doing really well this time. So I just love it. You know, it was, it's natural. It was yeah. I'll talk to anybody. And I mean, this time I didn't, I couldn't go out and do it. So I've been casting on the internet. I've been sliding into people's DMs on, on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook. So it really is him if he slides into your DMs. Slide into your DMs. It's me. You're not being catfish, darling. It is me. Now, what are, your, what are some of the personality types that you're looking for for Small Fortune? Like, how can people stand out and make sure they... Um, here's the thing with casting, right? Mm-hmm. And here's the thing that I learned with auditioning. You need to be at 150. You know, everybody wants to be at like 75, 80. You know, we all mm-hmm. want to be kind of cool and chic and a little reserved. But the thing that gets you in is when you're like, like over the top and crazy, but still controlling it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So you but so, bigger, but not necessarily playing into the stereotypes. Bigger, just bigger. Just so big. your personality comes you know, out. Because we want you. To, we want to think that you're going to get on the show, and that the people at home are going to root for you, mm-hmm. or the people at home are going to be like, "That person's crazy," or "Oh my God, he's so funny." You know what I mean? Because yeah. they're going to make that judgment like that. It's a 30 minute show, or it's an hour show, and your section is maybe 10, 15 minutes, 20 if you're lucky. So you've got to have that ting that like gets the the producer's attention and hopefully you'll translate to that because I keep finding these great teams that are great Mm -hmm. on paper and they're great when I talk to them because I'm talking to them like we're talking, but then when they get to the producers, they get very like, you know, (laughs) it's like, no, you got to get in there and you got to turn it on. You got to get in there and you got to fight. You got to get in there and like Mm -hmm. leave it on the floor. You know, so they're like, wow, this, you know, that was a joy ride. You know, that was, you know, a roller coaster. So I'm looking for, um, it's NBC. So we, of course we want attractive. Um, it can be any age, 16 to 60. We're looking for grandmothers. We're looking for grandmothers, daughters, and, and, and granddaughters. 
We're looking for families. We're looking for triplets. God, I need a set of triplets. We're looking for twins. Yeah, I want some twins, but not any triplets. That's the hardest thing ever. We're looking for um, uh, just cool groups of friends that have a real connection. Yeah. I'm I'm obsessed with this. I found this. Um, I've been like, there's one night I wanted goth girls. So all of a sudden I found myself in the goth world and I'm like on these goth sites and goth <laughs> chat boards and goth and, and searching goth on Instagram. So I wanted goth girls. I found some goth girls. Then I decided that I wanted an architect, you know, because it's the small fortune is it's, it's miniature versions of like historical landmarks. And then there's small games that you play, miniature games. So I, I thought an architect yeah. is used to building things to scale. So they'll be really good at the game. So I went on Facebook and searched architects. So if you had architect in your profile or there were architect groups and I sent out emails direct, I slid into people's DMs and I sent out, you know, group messages to the groups, to the person that runs the group. Can you send out this? Can you send this flyer to your membership? And I found a father who was an architect. His son is a um, is in aeronautics, and the daughter is the son is an aero is like an aerospace something, and the daughter is and the daughter is in college studying astrophysics. Huh. Like, and huh. so I took them to the producers. They're like, "Bitch, what?" Like, <laughs> like. How did you find them? You know, <laughs> one night I decided I wanted an architect. <laughs> and check, check, check. <laughs> wow. And I bought an astrophysicist. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So tell me a little bit more about this game as well. Like, what do they have to do? So the game is a British game that just came to, that's coming to the United States. The host is Lil Rel Howery, Howery, oh, comedian, okay. who's so okay. funny. Yeah, um, he was in Get Out. I remember yeah, from Get Out. He was, the, he was the best friend cop. He was the best friend that knew what was going on in Get mm -hmm. Out. He, he like, tried to tell him. Yep, that's the guy. He was the voice of reason. Don't, <laughs> don't drink the tea. Like, so it's hosted by him. And okay. basically it's this game show where they do these tiny scale models of like the Taj Mahal or the Louvre or the White House, but they figure out how to get these silly games inside them and that's how you play. That, and you play those games inside these like monuments, right? So you're playing things like miniature like beer pong or you're playing that game where you're at a bar, you take the, 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 the pint glass and you slide it to the end and the person that gets closest to the end of the bar without going over the side of the bar wins. You're playing little games like that, miniature games. <sighs> so it's small fortune, but oh, it's big money. The money is really, really good. So it's a fun, frivolous, you know, mm. mine, because I've been describing it as, remember when you were little and that game Operation? Yes. Take the funny bone out and you had to do all this stuff. To me, it's an operation. And okay. if you hit something, you 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 lose, you know, mm -hmm. or you lose life. So it's a really interesting game. I think it's gonna be super cute. And it's nighttime, it's you know, it's an evening game on NBC, so it's a lot of money. Now is this a remote game as well? Is this something they or is it something they're gonna do on set? Because no, I'm curious if they're gonna start filming yet. 
They're gonna, it's gonna, it's supposed to film in September, October. Okay. They're going to, um, and it's filming late, even though it's fall show, it's filming late because they're trying to do it as late as possible to see how the, you know, how the pandemic plays yeah. out. Um, the teams will be social distancing. So they'll, we're looking for teams that have been together and can play the, the game together, but they'll, but, but Lil Rel will be away. You know, he'll be on his side of the room yeah. talking ish. And the crew will be in the back, you know, in masks away from the players. Yeah, yeah. And they're not doing a um they're not doing a studio audience. Okay. So for the first time ever, there's no, you know, you need the studio audience to like know when to laugh or know mm. when to cheer or know when it's supposed to be suspenseful. But right. there's no studio audience. So that's why you need these players that are going to have to bring it even more because they're interesting. You know, they have mm -hmm. to be interesting. They have to lead the action. So wow. this sounds very exciting. Well, you have a lot going on and we're already in an hour. Why does the time go so fast when you're here? I don't know why it goes so fast. Because I talk too much. No, <laughs> never, never. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, rewind this tape and play it again several times again, because I love having you every time, of course, but... The first person that's done it two times? Um, just you and my dad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like my dad, I'm going to have to keep bringing back, because every time it's the same. It's like, oh, it's never enough time. <laughs> but yeah, only you two. I love that. And, and tomorrow I'm having um, Dr. Tiffany back again because she does like a mental health minute. Okay. I'm having her back because clearly after everything that's been going on, it's nice to have a check-in every once in a while just to make sure yes, we're handling everything. But, All right. Wait, so do you want to wrap it up or do you want to take Yeah, some I'm going to wrap it up real quick. Um, is there anything else that people need to know that you've got going on to look forward to? Um, buy the book. <laughs> um, buy my book. Buy the other black books we talked about. Um, find me on Instagram and Twitter if you want to do the reality, if you want to do the game show. And um, I've got some stuff coming up, and I'll come back and I'll talk about that when we're closer to that stuff coming to fruition. Yeah, I got it on tape. He's coming back again. Coming back again. <laughs> I'll take it. Every time. <laughs> I appreciate your time so much and all that you have to offer when we get on. We ended up talking about politics and history of modeling and all the drama of John Casablanca's. Like, who knew? I mean, everything, everything was amazing. And of course, the, the new shows that you're casting as well. So thank you again for being my guest. I can't wait to see what you have coming up next. I know it's going to be fast. Yeah, I got a couple of things working that out. Around August. Okay, perfect. I'll, I'll make sure I keep several dates open just to be able to pencil you in whenever you're ready. Yes. I'll All right. Well, thanks again, Marcellus, for being my guest again. And I'll make sure we coordinate wardrobes. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> part of me is like, do I text him? Like, no, they'll give away the surprise. And then I had like a shirt on underneath, but... You were dressed up last time and I was in the robe. This time I'm dressed up here in the robe. So next time we're going to coordinate. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say fabulous. Yes. Okay, got it. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again. And you have a great week. All right, you too, sweetie. All right. Bye. Bye.